0: Welcome back to another episode of Means of Creation, a weekly show where we are deep diving into the passion economy and talking about the future of work. I'm your host, Legion, along with Nathan Bechez, and today we're joined by our special guest, Chris Messina, who is a blogger, designer, product consultant, speaker, and technologist. I think I got it all. Chris is best known for inventing and popularizing the hashtag initially on Twitter and then It rapidly spread to most social media platforms today, including Instagram, Facebook, and Reddit. His work over the last 15 years spans social technology, product design, synthetic media, and more. And he's previously worked at Google and Uber in both developer platforms and UX teams. And currently, he's the number one product hunter on Product Hunt, responsible for hunting about 2,600 products over the years. And during the pandemic, he's figured out how to actually turn this hobby into a livelihood through a combination of super peer, product hunt, I think also developing a course. So he himself is a creator, and we're going to talk about that too. So without further ado, thank you so much, Chris, for being here today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm very honored to be here.
0: Amazing. So I know a few years ago, we met for the first time in person at this very random cafe in Mountain View post-YC demo day, it was close to the computer science museum and you had just been through YC, but maybe since then there's been a lot of evolution as well in what you're doing. And so I'd love to have you just give a quick overview for all of the attendees here on what is the bulk of your work now and what are you spending your time on?
1: Yeah, my, my, my career in Silicon Valley in general, I think has been like very random. I I don't know that I have any like specific skills, but my life has always been drawn towards communication, design, technology, and trying to figure things out and make sense of things. And so I, I guess in this current iteration, I spent some years working at bigger tech companies and then left, I did the startup thing, as you said, we met it right after YC, so I you know, I'd raised some money, I was building a conversational AI startup because I was very excited about bots and conversational software and interfaces. And generally, what that might mean for making technology maybe easier, more accessible for more people. That sort of flamed out for me. And then took a walkabout year where I was a digital nomad and I was traveling and giving talks all over the world. And I was mostly focused on asking questions about how we got here and why we're here and what, like, how do we learn from what we were. Like what, what we didn't know back in like 2005, six, seven, when we were starting out the social media kind of revolution, and then where are we now and where should this go next? And when I came into 2020, I was expecting to either write a book or keep giving talks. And then of course, with Shelter in Place, that, that idea just dwindled very quickly. And it was like, okay, now what? And two things came together. And I think this has been a, maybe a progressive or, or progression in my life in resisting less of the things that I really love to do and starting to lean into them. I think work has always been something that I thought needed to be hard and that I needed to force myself to do in order to earn money. That was the exchange I thought. And if you love doing what you are doing, then you probably shouldn't get paid for it because that'll somehow corrupt or undermine it. And I was always, I think, as a result, very skeptical about money and the corrupting influence of money to influence your prioritization. And so I like whether it was like the hashtag or whether it was this community that I was part of Barcamp or even the approach that I took to building the co-working community in the beginning, I really wanted those things to be open source and free. And I didn't want to have any kind of economic um, upside as a result of participating in those things because I wanted to do it for, for the love of it, for the purity of it. And I think my attitude has shifted either because I've grown up or because I've become more aware of myself. And anyways, what I found myself doing at the beginning of this year was helping a lot of people, founders and makers, launch their products on Product Hunt. And it had been really just a passion project, a hobby. It was nothing that I like took that seriously. It was the way I think about Product Hunt is it's a way of surfing the future. It's a way of seeing all these makers build things and solve problems that a lot of people understand are problems, but taking different like slices at the apple, so to speak. So anyways, that happened. And Debra, who's here, uh, I ended up seeing through this service called Spoonbill, which I rarely use. He had changed his Twitter bio to, to be, I think it was previously something along the lines of in stealth to suddenly revealing the name of the company he was working on. It was like Superpeer. I was like, oh, what is that? That's something I can hunt. And so I reached out to him and I was like, hey, I don't know what this thing is, but you want me to hunt it? And thus began this conversation. And I I was like super excited about what it was building. Basically, uh, Superpeer is Calme plus Zoom. That's all in the browser. There's nothing to download and you can charge for your time. And I was realizing that all this work that I was doing on my product hunts was taking up all of my time i had no time left over so i figured out maybe the way that i could find a balance is to monetize the time that i was putting in anyways with one-on-one conversations chats etc and so set up my super account actually became a very tiny angel investor in it because i was so excited about it and basically it just took off and that's kind of what i've been doing since
0: cool quick question is spoonville a service that lets you see when people change their twitter bios
1: Oh, yes. Yes. It's basically, it's oh. a dip log of anything that someone changes on their Twitter bio. I think it's spoonbill.io. Yeah. Got
0: it. Oh, Spoonbill. It's
1: like a bird, like a weird. Yeah. yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Very cool. Interesting.
1: It's not cool at all, but it's very useful.
0: <laughs> yeah. And you also, it's I cool. Mean, I mean,
2: like LinkedIn tells you when someone changes their job, what's the equivalent for us when we're using well, Twitter? I mean, I think,
1: you know? know, yeah. For people who live, live on Twitter or grew yeah. up on Twitter and that's Twitter like the first thing you change. Exactly. So it's actually, there's a lot of really interesting stuff in there. So that's, that's
0: totally.
2: And there's also probably people futzing with just the style of it. And you're like, "Eh, I don't need to be updated about that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I noticed the moment you change your bio to working on something new, VCs will go into your DMs.
1: See, so they're probably using Spoonbelt or something like it.
0: Yeah. Or, or doing it manually, which is pretty incredible too. That. Yeah. So that's <laughs> still my bio, but people have sl- have stopped sliding into my d- DMs because <laughs> I've told enough of them. I'm not looking for VC money.
2: I should just change it to working on something old now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly. And I noticed that you also monetize the product hunt activities as well through a service called coffee or Ko-Fi. Oh
1: yeah. So, um, there's a couple buying me a coffee services. And the one that I use is called coffee, which is F-I. And it's one of those things where, again, I never really, I never wanted to get myself in a position where someone had given me money and therefore expected me to hunt them. And so mm-hmm. taking the approach of just donations felt simpler, more straightforward approach Whereas, like, because I, I got a lot of people reaching out to me and saying, Hey, I really appreciate you know the fact that you hunt these things and you put these things out there and give them to the world on the one hand, it being an audience of that content. And then on the flip side, being makers and seeing that support. And I guess for me, having been in Silicon Valley for a long time and knowing the people that took you know, a chance on me or gave me access or just invited me into conversations that I otherwise wouldn't have known about, I guess I felt a similar opportunity to pay that forward. And again, I really just didn't want to get money into the mix. But coffee allowed me to get $5 donations, which is very small. But over time, they do accumulate. It's certainly in the Bay Area... Like my total proceeds probably could pay me two months rent in the four years or so that I've been using the service, but nonetheless, that's, that's not nothing. And so the fact that those come in as donations and there's just, I don't know, there's like thousands that have come my way has been really great. And again, not something that I expected. I will say, and, and maybe this will be a little bit surprising that when I chose to become a nomad and leave the Bay area, it was actually due to financial pressure. I, you know, left my startup and leaving that startup all the money that the company had raised stayed with the company. And yeah. even though I've been in Silicon Valley for a long time, my aversion to money meant that I really didn't get in to a lot of the sort of financial upside that a lot of my peers have seen. And so I really didn't know how I was going to make a living or what I was going to do. So the fact that there were some of those opportunities and especially with Superpeer, I think has really been a game changer because it allows me to make money in a way that's, I think, aligned with supporting like the founder and maker ecosystem. So I think, I don't know, he's It's been a really interesting path over the last couple of years, I think, to change the way that I think about what money is, how it does or doesn't affect me, and then how to make it and accrue it in a way that feels somewhat transparent and and straightforward.
2: Totally. To me, it reminds me of just also that transformation is mirrored in like the general culture of the internet. Cause I feel like back in 2010 or whatever, it was like, oh, everything is free. Like the Chris Anderson book about free and it's free open source. is like the huge thing, free content on websites. That was like the magic of the internet is everything's free. And then I feel like that kind of, we had a crash at some point, like five years ago-ish And now it's rebuilding itself, and it's maybe free is actually not the best model. And there is some stuff that should be free, but like maybe not everything. And maybe if people could get paid to specialize in the thing, that then creators and consumers would be happier because the creators that are really good can like now just focus on it and do it full time and and reinvest more to make what they're doing even better. And then consumers can benefit from that because they get the fruits of more specialized, like labor and attention and love on the part of the creators. And so it's really interesting how, like, the ethos of the internet has shifted and also your ethos has shifted like with it. I'm curious if that feels like, where do you see it shifting next? Cause I think you probably saw this before the general internet shifts. Do you think that we're in for another cultural change of that sort? Or do you think it's going to like remain stable? Like how it feels now for a while with the way that creators make money off the internet.
1: Honestly, I feel like it's really, it's confusing because like you said, and and I think I don't know exactly what it was. I don't know if it's, I think the iPhone has changed so much in terms of scaling access to the internet to so many more people and giving it through a device that sort of prioritizes media and, and a very straightforward experience where understanding how the underlying technology isn't really like the point. And so when it comes to Apple wallet, for example, I remember when I started to use Apple wallet more for digital payments, especially when I was in Europe. And that really wasn't the case in the US. And that started to give me this sense that there was a shift that was happening, that money was becoming more digital and that people were becoming more accustomed to what that felt like. And so the abstraction that digital technology required was becoming less off-putting. And I think like, uh, the story of my career in many ways has been tracking how technology feels less like technology over time, the more that like, designers and user experience apply their talent to to these rough surface areas. Like, I remember I wrote a blog post probably in 2007 or something about the importance of view source. To me, this was an important aspect of understanding the way that the web worked and understanding what was going on behind the scenes of the web pages that I was viewing. And obviously in the last several years, the web has become so much more complicated that viewing source doesn't really empower you that much anymore. It's like all JavaScript. It's basically like applications. In a similar way, I think that complexity has meant that more people can use these technologies because the the browser or the apps are doing more for the user to smooth over experiences. So anyways, I guess what I'm saying is that either familiarity or that relationship to money maybe was something that was from a values perspective, harder in the open source world, because it was from a game theory perspective, everyone is contributing and everyone needs to be contributing in the same footing, which is that yes, maybe there are some people who are like working for the company. but everyone is contributing into the same pot of code and therefore everyone benefits. Everyone can take out essentially from the same depository resource. It's like a community bank, right? But now as technology becomes a lot more accessible to a lot more people, I think people that have a very different relationship to to money, to possessions, to objects, to goods are bringing those attitudes and those values into the internet and onto the internet. And so those expectations and norms around money is completely different. And I guess I want to shape this a little bit What's changed for me is starting to understand money as a source of calories. It's like an exchange, and yeah. so I need calories to live. I need calories to be able to do what I'm doing, and so therefore, um, I can exchange some of my calories, some of my attention, some of my time for other people giving me, you know, money, which is an abstraction. And I don't need to feel like I'm like selling out or that I'm undermining the credibility of my offering. And yeah, I guess like that. The era that maybe ended around 2010, 2011, is when I feel like this shift that that you pointed out started to change. And where people who are used to sort of thinking about money, you know, their culture and their ideas and their norms started to become more commonplace. Whether it's Cameo and like charging for your minutes, or whether it's like celebs, or whether it's just YouTube influencers or the influencer economy in general. The fact that a bunch of people like, again, even Instagram in the beginning was about sharing photos and just like sharing your craft. And it really wasn't about monetization. And then I think over time, there became a realization. If you accrue a large audience, then you can sell the attention that you've accrued, essentially from your audience to advertisers. And that became a more efficient and also more cost-effective way of distributing ad dollars. Whereas right. ad dollars before would go into this pot that would just circulate images or messages or links in this you know massive platform, which is like Google or Facebook, yeah. now you can speak directly through a person to their audience, through a trusted voice. And it turned out that there was, it's interesting. I don't know what the order of scale is, but I can imagine if an advertiser is used to spending a million dollars on an ad buy, they could spend a hundred thousand dollars on an influencer and that would be life-changing for the influencer. And the influencer thinks they're making a ton of money, but that's right. like a 10th of what the advertiser usually would have spent. So all of that is changing the dynamic and the relationship between whether it's the gatekeepers or just like how money flows through the internet. so
0: Yeah. I think there is still, we're still in this transition period where I think a lot of people are still not comfortable charging for what they're creating on the internet. Mm. And I don't know, it feels like we just have, maybe we as a society, we as people have this very fraught relationship with the notion of charging and like tying money to different things that we do, especially when we love what we do. Right um, To your point, I, I hear this from startups and prospective users of all of these creator monetization platforms that to charge feels dirty or mercenary. It feels very transactional. It puts a price tag on their time that cheapens their time. I guess I'm an example of this too. I've never charged for my personal newsletter, even though multiple people have told me that they would be willing to pay for it. And I'm not swimming in cash. I would love to monetize it, but I just don't know how to, in a way that doesn't feel brand dilutive to me. See, I
1: think this is, so you're bringing up two really important points, which is one, I think the journey that I've been on in reconciling, like the fact that there are a bunch of people, like maybe, okay, let me try to say two things. So one, I think if you were to experiment with donations, that's maybe that was the gateway drug for me, where Mm -hmm. there was no obligation to pay. And yet people did. And so that let me have an experience where I was like, oh, okay, like I'm not forcing you to pay for this. I'm not asking, you're not asking anything of me that I'm not already doing. And so therefore like we're aligned. So if you were to add a donation button to your newsletter, that would be one way exploring if people really mean what they say and if they really want to pay you for that. And then maybe it's a small amount of money but it allows you to open up that, I don't know, that pathway. The other thing that I think you're saying, which is really important is that we've seen enough corruption that money causes that it makes us really skeptical of, especially if integrity is important to us, of allowing ourselves to be paid to do certain things. But I think what I've discovered, and this is like a a two-part observation, you know, is that when I would hunt products or post them to the product hunt community, there were several times where people would end up raising money or finding their first, you know, hundred customers and they would make lots of money that act. And so the fact that I opened that gate and then it didn't have any sort of upside in that opportunity meant that, well, eventually I will starve and die because like I'm not finding a way of getting my my caloric intake from that exchange. And so then how, again, do I say, look, I'm I'm not asking for a lot of money, but I want to keep being able to do this for more people. And so it became a matter of how do I charge for my attention? I only have a limited number of hours every day, and I need to make this amount of money. And I want to have this type of lifestyle, Is there a way for me to charge enough people to be able to make that work? And so I guess what I'm saying is what I lacked was a healthy relationship with the concept of money. In a very similar way, before I ever started working out, I had a really poor relationship with fitness. I had a body. I knew I had a body, but I didn't really do that much to maintain it. It's amazing. It just takes care of itself. But in terms of the rent doesn't pay for itself. So therefore you have to figure out ways of, of making that work. And so you have to decide to actually open up and have that relationship with money and be like, what does money mean to me? And what does it mean to have money and to not have it? And what does it mean to spend money and to receive it? And does it change the way that I feel about what I'm doing? And do I have the ability to say no to things? If there's a, lot, a, a large amount of money you know, put in front of me, will that actually affect my values? And so having gone through that process several times and either saying yes or saying no to different opportunities, I guess I learned to trust myself in it Whereas before I was just like, I'm not going to have the, I'm not going to even have the conversation because I'm too afraid of what it would mean. Hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think people have this very fraught relationship with money and monetizing themselves. I think like Karl Marx talks about this in Capital, in Das Kapital, where he talks about how people sell, like capitalism is the system under which we are selling our time and our labor and like, transforming that labor into money. And by through that transformation, by doing that act, our time no longer belongs to us. our labor no longer belongs to us. The, like the end product that we're producing, it belongs to someone else who then takes it and extracts more value from it. I think maybe some of this feeling originates from that and the sense that every transaction is every transaction that encompasses money is somehow like it's somehow a loss on our part where we're giving something
1: like, up. I think that, so what's interesting, right, is to on the one hand try to remember all these things in their historical context in, in which Marx would have been writing and thinking about and talking about these things versus where we are today. And I think one of the things, one of the revolutions that I had to go through myself was to come into an understanding of what the economics of scarcity means relative to the economics of abundance. And in addition to that, what is it like, again, when I, when I talk about like, money and calories being together or money and energy being together you have to also think about these as like capillary systems of movement of, of energy and as an individual worker maybe you're like the liver and you're like processing all the drinks that I have last night or something and but you are part of a, an overall body so if you look at it as being deleterious to yourself then you as a liver is not going to survive very long you are part of an overall system and so the movement uh, and the sort of improvement of Whatever the good or service that you're working on isn't necessarily extracted to you. It could be, right? I think that's the the tension that we're finding ourselves in this attention economy, which is that we're given an enormous, or given access to an enormous amount of information that we've never had access to before, for for good and ill, and and yet we are producing, you know, content as well that advertisements are then layered on top of. But you're not. We're not actually extracting. Like an abstracted form of value that we can then again convert into calories. In other words, yeah. I produce a huge amount of really valuable content for Twitter. Has Twitter ever paid me? No. And yet they expect me to continue on doing what I'm doing and to figure out some other external way of monetizing that, which then puts me in that awkward position of having to charge to promote like muscle milk or something, which I've never done, but like to basically promote something that I wouldn't have otherwise said to get access to my audience. And unfortunately, like that's, I think, this interesting dilemma. Of course, we talk about how if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. But that's almost like an overtrivialization of the fact that we are in a transitional period between the economics of scarcity versus the economics of abundance. But we just don't really have the language to really even talk about and articulate what would be a more equitable exchange in this new network paradigm.
0: Mm-hmm. I'd love to dig into that point that you just <laughs> said, what would be a more fair exchange in this network paradigm, especially given your past experience at Uber Sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> that has been in the news recently and lots of workers feel that the exchange that they're offering is not fair. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
1: And without meaning to be like, or feeling like defensive, just to provide some context, one of the reasons why I joined Uber was to work on the developer platform. And what I was promised was the opportunity to help figure out how to build a kind of Facebook connect for cities. With the idea that with all the data that Uber was throwing off from the rides that were being taken, suddenly you could imagine a kind of Google analytics for cities that cities could use to actually improve what they were doing. So I was optimistic and hopeful that might've happened. As it turned out, the job was a lot more focused on just getting more Uber trips taken in more places. And that's fine. That's what their business is, clearly. But so I, I left after a year. But I think your points, you know, is still a good one. and still important. And I guess there is a question of what is the, the role and the purpose of the state in terms of protecting and advocating on behalf of its citizens versus the state exists to facilitate commerce. And it's, again, the zero-sum game where the competitive nature is that there will be one, the state doesn't want one winner. They don't want a monopoly because that puts that company... Uh, in a position of having more power than the state, but they do want there to be like a a winner-take-all, no-holds-barred kind of approach, I think, to competition, at least in the United States. Whereas in Europe and other places, I think citizens have a lot more trust of their government and distrust of corporations. So in the U.S., that's flipped, uh, clearly because of our historical experience with the British. And so all that has to be considered when you think about how Uber can exist and the role that Uber should play in taking care of employees versus whether the state should actually be the one that says, you know what, we're going to put up, I don't know, for some reason I'm thinking about a boxing match. It's like the state that puts up the, what are they call it? The, like in a ring and you have the ropes, like the state is the one that sort of needs to put those up. And then right. the state runs the bells and maybe you have your own coach, but like the players in the ring ultimately will be taken care of through those externalities. And I think the way that, that Uber saw it was like, we're just providing a network layer on top of individual citizens. are selling their time. And the perception though, based on the industrial revolution was that people worked for Uber and that Uber was the boss and Uber set the time when they're on and off. And I think it opened up a whole bunch of interesting vagaries because the nature of work in the information age is entirely different. And so the assumptions that we have from the industrial age, that you go to work from nine to five, that there are seasons and that we're working in according to the amount of available sunlight that's available, which, you know, came from farms and so on, like daylight, doesn't apply anymore. Yeah, exactly. So we have a lot of these legacy things that just never go away. And one of those is this question, which I think is still unresolved as to what degree or to what extent companies are responsible for their workers versus the state. And so I think that's what a lot of this stuff that the prop 22 in California is about, what should that arrangement be? And I think the reason why it's so interesting is because if you want to have ultimate freedom and self-sovereignty over when you work, how you work, how much you work, and who you work for, then that also requires that someone else is taking care of the long-term your long-term health. Because essentially your relationship is much more at arm's length to your employer than in the previous era, where let's say you went to work for Ford and you worked there for 40 years, and therefore you were really susceptible to not being taken care of At the end of that extent, because you were really reliant on your employer for taking care of all your healthcare and and your expenses and everything else. And that was in the era of company towns, when the company could dictate so much more of your life. Now we want our freedom, but then we also want the company to pay for healthcare and things like that. And I think that's where this tension really lies. So I'm not saying I have the right answer, but I think that's how I would try to maybe piece or, or
2: take this apart. Totally. I think the interesting thing is like, how do we create the conditions for people to take more risk? Because I think society would benefit from a wider variety of people being able to like, not necessarily just people with a bunch of money to be able to take the leap and do things that involve more creativity and more like originality than plugging into a system. And the great thing about Uber is there's zero risk. Like you sign up, And if you like work the hours, pretty much exactly how much money you're going to make. And it's not going to be a lot, but at least there's zero risk because Uber's figured out a model where they know how much they can charge and whatever else. And people know they want rides. It's very predictable. Whereas if you try and make it into more of a non-commoditized thing, then that means there's going to be some things that work out really well and some things that don't work out. And it seems in order for the passion economy to, to like, basically to work better and to keep expanding. There's got to be some better, more stable foundation for people because right now it's just, I think for the most part, people who are young, people who come from money, people who have already made money somehow, or people who somehow blew up without having to spend like lots of time on a thing or invest lots of money in a thing. And then they can just, it's okay. I already blew up. So now I can make it work because it's de-risked for free almost. But yeah, I think it'll be really fascinating to see. It's so funny to imagine like how ingrained like a lot of the structures we have are of like where healthcare comes from or all the way to like, you were saying like daylight savings time is to like make people working on farms, like work a little bit better. Like I wonder if in the future we'll have like golden hour savings time for Instagrammers or whatever, so the that the content. content creators can do a little bit better in the winter. But yeah, it's, cra- it's crazy <laughs> to think what could happen like with 50 years time where these things really get a little more locked in and we have bigger, more, more solidified changes that could take place.
0: Yeah. I think also the major difference in labor now versus hundreds of years ago is that although these the workers have flexibility and can tap into these platforms whenever they want to for work, the platforms still have a sizable amount of influence and leverage over them and really are still the gatekeepers to their ability to access customers. And I think that's intrinsic to the fact that they have network effects and it's a network system and people all like customers and drivers all want to use the network that's the largest and densest and has the most liquidity. And so in that sense, the employer, or I guess not employer officially, the platform still has a ton of leverage over every individual driver that works on the platform. And so I think, I, I, I don't think that people really do have free choice in what platforms to work on, what they wanna do in a world that is so networked.
1: What would, what would free choice look like if you were to say, actually people do have free choice?
0: That's a really hard question.
2: There's a homunculus in your brain that can pull the levers. Sorry, we're getting into the Sam Harris discussion about whether free will exists at all, which is a rabbit hole.
0: <laughs> no, I think,
1: I don't think that there's any perfect answers. Yeah. I think that that like most things, everything's respires. And the since there's a breathe in, a breathe out, there's a San Francisco boom and bust. There's a pendulum that's like constantly swinging between extremes. And so I don't know that there's perfect freedom to choose. Essentially, you can imagine a world where everybody basically is given a million dollars let's say, surprise, it's happy new year, million dollars, everyone in everyone's bank account. Now, besides inflation, let's ignore that for a second and let's pretend everything costs the same amount. Does that mean that now you have perfect freedom of choice? Because as you said, Nate, uh, Nathan, which do you prefer?
2: Nathan. Nathan? Sorry, <laughs> okay, Nathan,
1: my bad. Uh, <laughs> uh, I forgot what- oh, freedom, yeah, it's okay, freedom. Uh, okay, and so then, I suppose there's still some people that would choose to drive for uber because they enjoy it because they like picking up people they like that that interaction that feels useful and it's also maybe circumscribed within a certain time frame i think one of the interesting things is that that maybe you know makes a little more sense if you were to have smaller communities that are geographically co-located where you feel some sense of connection to your neighbors and there's that visibility but as we went down the path of agriculture, which then, you know, allowed us to eventually get to the abstraction of money and fiat currencies. We now have mobility and there's less interconnectedness between the people that we live close to geographically. And so part of that freedom is choosing to not necessarily be responsible for your neighbors anymore in the same way they used to be. I I, like, I totally understand what you're saying in terms of, well, you have to work for the biggest players that have the most liquidity and the most access to rides for you. Because if you go and work for a smaller one and you get a ride once a week and you're really needing to make, you know, ends meet from driving around on that platform or service, and it doesn't actually work out. And you know, basically, that's a marketplace that is not functioning. So I don't really know how to make sense of this. I think we're asking for more from the Ubers and the Lyfts of the world to take more of that responsibility and shoulder the burden, given that they're making a lot of money and a lot of revenue. But we've also seen what happens in the pandemic suddenly, like demand plummets. And then what? If things had continued as it was, then perhaps, yes, you could have continued to ask for more and more from those companies because they were making more money because they were just becoming the de facto way of people getting around and getting transportation. But we had public transit. We had socialized transportation. We paid taxes to cover that. And yet the product wasn't improving. The product wasn't getting better. The product wasn't meeting the last mile. The product wasn't providing opportunities with good jobs. I don't know how you square the desire to have increasingly better products that are adapting to new technology, while also having a state system that is really averse to investing in new opportunities because it's the people's money. And when it comes to taxes, people want to spend less of it on like socialized goods. You know what I mean? So again, that's why you have to look at this from a more holistic perspective of like capillary system of movement and motion and energy that these things don't all happen in uh, in isolation. Like Uber is a product of the smartphone era. It is a product of the internet. It is a product of the socialized GPS system that the U.S. military invested in order to be able to fight like the Russians. Like it's all part of the same thing. And yet we look at it, we're like Uber should, or, or maybe there should be unionization. But unionization also requires standardization of demands and of coming together as a group and investing a lot more of your time and attention in the sustenance and maintenance of that group in order to be able to argue and articulate a set of demands. And if people are joining Uber or Lyft because they want to have some supplementary income by driving once or twice a week, it's really hard to imagine how much additional time or effort or energy or hours those drivers would be willing to put into that type of unionization in order for it to be effective. Does, does yeah. that make sense? Like the collective bargaining piece feels like that's really, really yeah, hard to Yeah, I don't think
0: the collective bargaining piece is going to work in these modern industries because collective bargaining is, it, it works for a given company. It doesn't work. It, you can't collectively bargain with an entire industry right. and have all of the employers, the platforms collude with each other and negotiate on prices together. So Especially I'm not sure. like When you
1: move to a world where it's algorithmically optimized, right? The, the whole genius of Uber was yeah. to say with surge pricing, you could suddenly move into a world of variable pricing, right? If you were to try to make this a little more concrete. Imagine going to a restaurant and the prices for the food is set per the, the diner and the regularity with which you eat there. Maybe because you eat there every other day, like you get a better price, a better deal. Whereas someone who comes in out of town for the first time, their prices are 2X what that, that person is paying. That's essentially what Uber said, was like, we can have, instead of one standard rate for you know taxi rides, we will be able to move the price up and down simply as a function of demand. Uh, and and availability. And that is something that I think is really hard to bargain against, like how do you bargain against an algorithm?
0: Yeah. I I don't have the right answers, but uh, sorry, Nate, I I was just going to say, I think my solution, my like kind of band-aid solution for now is just making more choices available to, to workers and giving them more options than just driving for Uber or just driving for DoorDash and providing them with a whole suite of different platforms that they could choose to monetize off of, some of which are less commoditized and where they could hopefully maintain pricing power. And that's the reason why I built Side Hustle Stack, which just went viral Mm, on Twitter, shockingly. (laughs) Thank you.
2: On TikTok, right? Not Twitter.
0: Oh, yeah. On TikTok. Sorry. It <laughs> Which went is viral so much on TikTok. Than going
2: viral on Twitter.
0: <laughs> yes. Oh, Twitter gosh. has actually blocked me from tweeting the URL, but TikTok what? is still our friend. Yes. SidehustleStack.co. You cannot tweet it right now.
2: Uh, <laughs> what is it? This claim uh, is uh, disputed or whatever?
0: <laughs> it's it, it might be suspicious. Like, how oh. is it suspicious if it's just a bunch of links to different websites, but I don't get it. Anyways, my, my goal was to like expose people to the wide range of different platforms that they could find work on and compare all of the different earnings and see like how their skill set maps to all of the different platforms for work out there. So I think that is a solution. I think there, there needs to be a lot more though.
1: Let me, let me push on that a little bit because I agree and I support that, that initiative and I hunted it.
0: Oh, yes. Thank you. Thanks okay. for hunting it on product time. <laughs> By the way, there should be, you should expand your services to TikTok, like it's creating viral these, TikToks to launch yeah. products. It's really effective.
1: Uh, yeah. okay. <laughs> All right, I'll consider that. So if we play out this side hustle stack, right? Give it like five to 10 years, because if we think back to 2010, that was the real ascent. That's like kind of when Instagram came out really. And so we're in, we're a decade in to Instagram Instagram now is the QVC for Gen Z. It's no longer a photo sharing app. And so I'm curious, like with the side hustle stack, there's going to be a similar amount of optimization of creators figuring it out. How or, or do you prevent the accrual of average or success to a small number of people who essentially create the new type of like gang or clique that like these influencer or creator houses I think are an early example of this. So they had guilds back when people had swords and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like now they have phones and they have guilds and they're coming together to co-monetize.
2: Because that's such a guild... we should totally market the everything bundle as a guild. I love that. <laughs> is, totally. Branding. We should have a guild hall where we have festivals where
1: you we have to have a, I think we should all have a, a what are they called a, a family coat of arms or something? Yeah. Right? We
2: definitely need a coat of arms. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and everyone's last name is like Smith or whatever. Cause you're like a blacksmith or <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly. But so, so Lee, I think where, if this all succeeds, what does the economy look like in 10 years? Is it that there are no more Uber drivers or Lyft drivers or DoorDash drivers? Like, delivery people because it's all automated, right? That's all going to be self-driving and robots and Boston Dynamics will finally like figure out an an exit for the fifth time. And individually, like instead, we'll all be plugged into the matrix and just having amazing dreams and thoughts and producing content that we like and everything will be tokenized and therefore we'll get a little income and there'll be universal basic creator income for this creative class that's functioning. Yeah. Like paint me a picture of, of 10 years from now. What does it look like?
0: Yeah. I'm hopeful that it's not just going to be type house and hype house and all of these <laughs> small like creative collaboration Bills. groups that are making millions of dollars and no one else. Right. That was what my piece yesterday was all about yes. was how do we spread the wealth around and make sure that there's a lot more creators that can be successful. And I hope that some of these new platforms that are emerging that focus on the long tail can help enable that and enable people who have maybe like 100 followers and super fans to be able to monetize that. But I think like platforms all go through this evolution. I think Chris Dixon wrote about it on his blog um, about centralization and the perils of centralized platforms where they start out being very participant friendly and giving a lot of value to their participants. And then at some point of scale, they all shift into being more extractive of value from their participants. And I think that... Well,
1: their customer set changes. Yeah. Advertisers to the public markets. So it's like anything else. It's if you have a mine, eventually you're going to have to start refining the thing that's in the mine in order to, as you said, like, and maybe this is like the long-term consequence where just the the cycle that repeats. Whenever there's an aggregation of something that people want, then invariably there will be, it's just like the housing market, right? Where there's sort of abstractions of products that are built upon the things that have been figured out and optimized. And I think from the the creative economy, the same thing is happening. Does that make sense?
0: Yes, and I think the Substack we'll have cloud launch.
2: default swaps that we can trade as on the derivatives markets. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, and I I think at some point in that platform evolution, the power shifts to the platform rather than to the participants. But I think there's going to be cycles of that, and there's as soon as it becomes harder to gain value from participating on a platform, users will want to migrate to something new. And there will be upstarts that arise that make it easier for them to do like what Eugene wrote about in his status as a service blog. There's a life cycle to these platforms because they become too extractive. It becomes too hard for anyone else to come up. And so people migrate elsewhere to like a new country, a new platform.
2: They also grow in like complexity Sometimes they don't keep up with new format possibilities created by new technologies. Maybe they just don't keep up with culture. There's a lot of things that make it like brittle that are forces against. Oh, you just like, it's an iterated game where it's you win, you advantage to, it makes you more likely to win the next game. And so therefore there's this in state where it all collapses and it's like, extreme wealth inequality where you've got like 100% of the wealth belonging to the winner and then everybody else has nothing or whatever. The thing that ends up practically getting in the way is just all the things that I was just talking about. But it is interesting how they are like pretty sticky and it feels like we might be, it's very dependent of, I think, on technological progress and platform shifts. And, and, and we may not have as many of those because like those are dependent upon stuff like Moore's Law or network speeds getting faster. We're probably going to have another one with 5G where there's like an order of magnitude shift and just like bandwidth available to people. will make a huge difference. We may have a few more, but it doesn't go on forever probably because a lot of other things at certain points hit some natural limits. It ultimately is rooted in just like physics, right? There are some hard constraints probably there. And so maybe we've got another 20 years of like platform shifts or maybe 30 years or 40 years, but at some point it could reach a sort of stable equilibrium where there is a natural winner take all effect. And it's so weird. Cause it's like, we had that with telephones, like with AT&T in the U S and it was just telephones. Like it's, I don't know, like a simple product in a certain way. Whereas it's weird. Is there like a natural monopoly? Like is TikTok have some like authority on certain type of like video content. It's just so much more complex. There's so many more degrees of freedom that you have to manage the platform. And it's so hard to make those decisions. Cause if you look at Twitter, like we're all still there because we're all still there and like they keep adding stuff and taking it away. And it's like, it's kind of, I don't know, it's the America of social networks. Like we love it. It's ours, but it's dysfunctional. Like, I don't know. It's, it seems hard to like, Think about how do you manage these things competently when you have such a natural monopoly and for now that can get affected by just other platform shifts and changes but what if we stop having those how would we manage for that
1: i think uh, it seems to me again that i like to just i don't know if it's like biomimicry or just like watching for patterns and the way that anything reorganizes itself over time from the the microscopic to the macroscopic whether we're looking at like the galaxy and. All the stars that are kind of like blown up and it's just like entropy acting itself out and then observing itself we do it feels like some of these social platforms are a bit becoming more like cities where as long as there's construction and reconstruction going on granted it's not there's not a lot of access per se to build these things unless you work within those companies and so that's i think where the city metaphor breaks down but it could change and i think that's where whether it's like blockchain or ipfs or some of these decentralized technologies are trying to foothold in saying, we can build these things ourselves. The problem though is that they're so sparse that it's really hard to gain enough, I think, interest and that the number of people who can contribute to those platforms and networks is actually quite small. And so it makes more sense just from an probably economic perspective to go to work for a big tech company, as opposed to going and building some you know crypto thing that's like super decentralized and is all about freedom and choice and yet has five users. And I say that because I've worked in that space. Like I was excited about Mastodon before that. I was excited about Diaspora. You know, we were trying to decentralize the social networks because we didn't want to end up in the situation where Facebook had a monopoly. That was literally yeah. my stated goal of starting something called the Diesel Project in 2008 and building a number of technologies, including OAuth and OpenID and a bunch of these formats to try to decentralize the networks. I went to Google to basically try to make that happen, but then they realized that actually Facebook was becoming an existential threat, and therefore we had to change our whole decentralized dreams and centralize, and it was you know, it's like... It's, I always, I always wanted the thought, like, how do they build the Death Star? Like, how do they recruit for that? I, I suppose maybe like people were just born into it. And so it, it's like being a fish and being in water. You don't really realize right. that's what you're doing. But to build something that's like a galactic empire feels like you really have to know how to motivate people and get them excited about this world that you're building. Unless it's all just- or like maybe afraid or of a
2: world that could crumble.
1: Yeah. Well, so, so anyways, I guess going back to this point about the city and about the like Twitter and so on, it did occur to me that- the level of innovation or the number of new features that Facebook or Facebook, whatever that, whatever it is, Facebook, Twitter, who cares? Whoever's copying off of whomever, all that matters is that they just keep building. They just keep like doing new things and new experiments. It's it's like a new television show. It's You're already on the network. You just need to know that there's something new and exciting to play with and to explore and to talk about. And like Clubhouse, like the first rule of clubhouse is that you talk about clubhouse on clubhouse. I feel (laughs) like that's the way that social media is moving where you're just like, Oh wow. We have stories. Oh wow. We have like, you know, clubhouse inside of Twitter. Like it doesn't really matter what the product is anymore. As long as people are going there and there's something to do. Yeah.
0: By the way, I've I've totally lost track of time and I realize we only have five minutes left. And by the way, everyone, this is our last episode of 2020. Um, We're taking a break for Christmas and New Year's, so no shows for the next couple of weeks and we'll be back on January 8th, I think, whatever that Friday is. And so in the last few minutes that we have here, I'd love to do a retrospective of this year from the perspective of technology and humans and society and psychology because it's been such a doozy and or like share predictions for next year.
2: Nathan, you want to go first? Bitcoin 50K. No, I'm just kidding. Uh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> Only? Well,
2: <I> <laughs> yeah, oh. that's like not a hundred K would have been more exciting. No, I have zero Bitcoin predictions. I don't know. Retrospective, I think that I think we're this is like probably the deepest change, like crazy black swan thing that has happened in a really long time, probably bigger than nine 11, probably bigger than, I don't know, the fall of the Soviet union or like any other, there's like a bunch of really big historical things. And this feels like it's up there. Like it's such a crazy experiment. If you had said what happened if literally people couldn't go outside for like a year (laughs) and I feel like, and you also gave them the internet. Yeah, exactly. I I feel like the internet, I just feel like 21 is going to be about, we'll learn what the lasting changes will be because of this, um, because we don't really know yet. There's a lot of stuff that's, it things going to go back to normal. They're going to go back to something, but I don't know. There's just like before and after, like BC, AC, I guess. And I don't know. It'll, I, I just think, I don't have any specific predictions, but I just predict 2021 will be, we'll have a much better view of like, just the longer term changes. I think they are going to be many. I think it'll be greater than we expect, like the extent to which things won't be the same for a while. Not saying that we'll never go outside again or whatever. Like, I think that things will open back up and whatever, but like just stuff like college. Do you go to college on a campus? I don't know. Maybe you move to a city with your friends and you do something on the internet where you're learning and why should that thing be whatever, like this. Anyway, it's just a lot of stuff changes because of this. Yeah
0: retrospective of this year i think it's been really surprising to me just how many relationships how many new relationships i've built and deepened this year all over the internet for like for all that we shit on zoom and having zoom fatigue i think it has been this amazing blessing for connecting us to so many people and removing a lot of the friction that we used to impose on ourselves to meeting new people like it used to be the case when i lived in menlo park i would see my san francisco friends once a year because it's like oh i'm here today are you free no okay next time in a month and then we just keep missing each other and now there's no excuses it's let's hop on the phone tomorrow and so i've just had so many more new friendships like old friendships that have been lapsed, have been revived and I I think it's been amazing and I've done investments in companies where I've never met the founders in real life and have developed the whole relationship over Zoom and it still feels very rich and deep and we'll see how those go and maybe I totally like misread people, but I don't think so. I think we have actually connected to each other all online and in a way it reminds me of my childhood growing up on the internet on the early days of the internet, where we had social platforms that were much more creative and authentic, I think, where people were just free to fully express themselves, whether it was on Zanga or Live Journal or Neopets or fan My fiction space. forums, where we would just put our diaries on the yeah. internet basically and actually talk about ourselves. I think we're going back a little bit to that because it's the only way that we can actually connect now and we have to be more authentic online. So I'm hopeful that continues in the future too.
1: Yeah, I, I like a lot of what both of you said. I think in, in in so many ways, maybe the Mayans were were 20 years off or something in terms of the end of the world. But <laughs> yeah. we have really, I think, gone through like the end of the world in so many ways. And granted, with the vaccine coming out from now through you know the middle of the summer, that obviously does a reset. And in many ways, despite the enormous tragedy that. And, and the huge, just, it's just in, incomprehensible, the, the amount of loss of life this year, and how much of that loss of life was really unnecessary. In some ways, this year has also been a gift, because it has really been the great pause that I think a lot of us probably needed or intuitively felt that the way in which the world was going and has been going has been on this tear as a result of the industrial revolution, that we really haven't been able to slow down. And we are in this place where the world is slowing down it has slowed down it's forcing us to really think about what is important how we treat each other how we treat ourselves like the the way in which mental health and mental fitness and you know emotional wellness is now like a common conversation i think is so important and so necessary the way in which equity and racial justice and gender equity are now part of this dialogue and conversation that was behind the scenes, but is now coming to the fore, and we've realized how much language we've, we, I say this as a white guy, have lacked in being able to talk about these things and to listen and to really feel what other people are, are experiencing. I think it is should be, at least I hope, humbling. And technology is, is, is a big piece of that unraveling. I don't think it's the solution or the answer, but it certainly puts into the fore how technology dehumanizes us and lowers us to attention eyeballs that just consume to now, I think a lot of what you guys have been talking about with means of creation is giving back to the network, figuring out how to do that in a way that is enriching the relationships uh, that we have. And ultimately like the, the best social technologies, that is what they should do for us. Yeah. And hopefully this year has given people a sense of, wow, this technology really sucks and it's really neat. I don't the way I feel when I use it so much, but then on the other hand, Well, I'm able to stay in touch. I'm able to get connected to people in a way I couldn't before. I didn't trust this technology or it was too hard to use. And now suddenly there's a motivation to get a lot more people into it, which hopefully are causing people to demand a higher level of execution and standards in the way that technology behaves and acts. So if anything, maybe this year also is about equipping people with the language to ask better questions of the technology that they use and that is now part of their lives and maybe... Next year and the year beyond will be about resetting that relationship and figuring out how to give people more opportunities to use it in a way that is constructive um, and is pro social as opposed to antisocial.
0: Yeah, I love that. Based on what I could see at the last YC demo day, I think I definitely saw glimpses of that and this acknowledgement that we need to make technology conducive to the types of relationships and interactions that we want to have with each other there were so many founders talking about how they're building like new tools to help us connect because what we have even though it's it it serves the bare minimum of seeing each other's faces it still feels too formal or too corporate for other types of situations in which Let's you're trying it all the to time just...
1: it's exhausting
0: yes exactly right? and There's how no can vulnerability
1: we... and that vulnerability is so key to I think being able to trust and to communicate and to feel, which, you know, is a big part of that. Sorry.
0: Yes, no, absolutely. And I think people are more sensitive and aware of that now, of the need to build technology that is conducive to connection and compassion and feelings. And so I'm optimistic that hopefully that will be a theme that we see going forward.
2: And maybe some technology that's conducive to moan contests.
0: Oh my God, we're going to edit that out. I cannot believe <laughs> that happened. The new moan on clubhouse. Clubhouse. Yes. I mean
2: clubhouse ends up on
1: Twitter. Right. I guess we do
0: have a duty to talk about that. Anyways, okay, thank you guys so much for coming here today. I'm going to drop the link to our Discord community in the chat here. If you have more questions for Chris, drop them in there. I'm sure Chris will find time at some point in the next day months years Mm -hmm. minutes to go to talk to you guys more and check out all of his links which he's just dropped in here as well if you need to be hunted for product hunt follow him on on twitter at chris messina as well but thank you so much chris for being here this was such a mind-bending conversation and i always experience that with you and i'm so grateful for your presence on the show today
1: thank you thank you guys for having me and for indulging me again
2: Oh, no, you're indulging us. (laughs) (laughs) All right.
0: All right. And thank you to all of our guests for joining us throughout this year. You have made this my weekly highlight of my year. And I've appreciated getting to know all of you guys so much. So thank you. And I wish everyone a happy holiday. Happy New Year. I'll see you guys in January.